Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On Wednesday, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov visited China for talks with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, during which the two sides declared their intention to deepen cooperation and speak on global affairs with a united voice. This was the first in-person meeting between high-level Russian and Chinese officials since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it comes amid ongoing questions about what role China may choose to play in supporting Russia. U.S. intelligence agencies, of course, raised the alarm that China or that Russia had requested China's military assistance. Uh, And there are ongoing questions about whether China would evade U.S. and European sanctions, although it's unlikely that China would needlessly elicit backlash by being so blatant in its support for Russia. Um, In any case, it's certain that the evolving relationship between Russia and China will be a key factor in the current crisis and especially in the world order that follows. And so to help us make sense of where this relationship is, where folks think it's likely to head, we're really excited to welcome back David Schulman and to welcome Jude Blanchett. Uh, Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Great to be here. Great Um, to be here. Brief bios. Dave Schulman is senior director of the uh, Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council, where he leads the council's work on China. His research focuses on China's foreign policy and grand strategy, U.S.-China relations, China-Russia relations, and the implications of China's rise for global order and the future of democracy. And Jude holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, He was previously um, engagement director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economics and Business in Beijing, where he researched China's political environment with a focus on the workings of the Communist Party of China and its impact on foreign companies and investors. Um, Jude, I want to start with you. Um, You just had a wonderful piece out in the Washington Post, um, kind of weighing in on where things stand Um, Can you just walk us through kind of what you argued in that piece? And I guess the general context is it seems that there's still a little bit of debate or churn in the community about just how wholeheartedly China would be willing to back Russia in this case. Some people have said, no, 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 not so fast. And this might really expose the limits of their partnership. Um, It seems like maybe evidence is mounting that it's going to move beyond that and that this, you know, that they are going to continue to deepen relationship, deepen the relationship. So I guess, where are you right now? How do you see this? And maybe give us a teaser of your Washington Post piece. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think depending on where you, you sit on this, there's evidence to support your view. On the one hand, China's, you know, continuing public position has been I think close enough to something that looks like neutrality, that if that's what you'd like to believe, um, you can find confirmatory evidence uh, from that. And even even indeed on that, we've seen China's position, official position um, shifting over the last couple of weeks away from um, what was very much a pro-Russia position at the beginning to something which looks a little bit more uh, mixed now. I I think though, um, uh, if we're looking at this more holistically, it's pretty clear what China's approach is, which is to support Russia without inviting too much backlash. So they're still being quite careful in terms of uh, sanctions compliance because they'd like to avoid secondary 
sanctions. But on the other hand, you're seeing that the, the Chinese ambassador to Moscow just the other day welcomed, invited, and indeed encouraged China's SMEs to be entering into to, uh, Russia to fill the void that has now been created as Western companies um, pull out of this. The argument just very quickly that I was making in the Washington Post piece is my sense is in looking at the debate there had been a growing consensus that China is first and foremost concerned about uh, avoiding costs, diplomatic or economic costs, especially its diplomatic relationship with Europe, and that therefore, as the war uh, worsened, China might consider backing away from Russia. And what I felt was incomplete about that perspective is the, the entire reason that Russia over the past six to 12 months, if not longer, and again, as you, you and Dave have done a, a lot of fantastic work on this, the reason that the relationship between the two has been growing in proximity and overlapping interest is in many ways because of a shared view on a, a hostile security environment and a feeling that the United States has a containment strategy. If that is the case, if that's the underlying mathematics behind the relationship, especially more recently, that hasn't changed at all over the past month. And indeed, I think you could argue that from Beijing's view, after looking at uh, discussions coming out of Germany on increases in defense spending, after looking at what looks like a revitalized NATO, discussions coming out of uh, a, a revitalized Quad, AUKUS, uh, then indeed seeing a demonstration of US and allied power uh, in kicking Russia off of SWIFT, in, in sanctioning the Russian Central Bank. I would think you'd come at that discussion if you're Xi Jinping thinking that, if anything, Russia might be more important as a potential partner looking forward, in part because they don't have anyone else. Um, so the, the, the final point of the argument was, don't expect that as Russia's position appears more precarious um, and as sanctions continue to bite, that Beijing is going gonna, is gonna to back out of the room slowly. If anything, I think the opposite might happen. It might be more willing to assume some costs to step in and, and support Russia. Yeah, that sounds a lot like Dave and I have been talking a lot about this, um, and it sounds kind of about where we are. But Dave, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the reasons why, why I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you expect China, if you agree with Jude and expect that China may be willing to lean in and is not going to kind of back out of this really important partnership with Russia. Um, what are some of the reasons? What are some of the, A, some of the maybe broader foundations for that and what makes I don't know, what makes this an important time for China to continue to build that relationship with Russia for the future? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Andrea. I, I, I completely agree with what, what you laid out, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, I think, you know, what's interesting, just to add into what he was saying about, you know, the shift rhetorically that we perhaps have seen from China. I mean, we it did seem at, at the kind of outset that perhaps, um, you know, China was going to be, people were debating whether or not they're going to be more critical of Russia. And then we heard China wasn't going to call it an invasion. They were going to talk about Russia's legitimate security interests, all of that. Um, and I think, if anything, we've actually gone a little bit more in the direction of China going through a period where they were maybe trying to create a little bit of distance with Russia. But now to have you know Wang Yi standing next to Sergei Lavrov and to have Wang Yi talking about the fact that, if anything, now the relationship is, you know, they're more determined to deepen ties with Russia. You have the foreign ministry spokesperson saying uh, there is no ceiling uh, on on the partnership um, uh, to counter hegemony uh, in in the international order, which of course is is a hit at the United States, um, and also you know harkens back to the joint declaration that Russia and China put out 
uh, way back on on February fourth, I believe, or seventh, I think. Um, and so, um, you know, I, it, there was, was some debate as to whether kind of China would would uh, move away from that declaration, and it does not seem like they're doing that. Um, and I think, if anything, now we're also seeing more in the language about the United States and NATO being to blame for the ongoing war um, and really trying to shift the debate and the conversation uh, around the U.S. and NATO fanning the flames and not really being interested in in resolving this and, and coming back to peace and stability. Um, and that message, and I think that this kind of builds on what Jude was saying, yes, China, and we can talk a lot more about China-Europe, and I think that's that's important and that's where the most you know difficult strategic uh, problem lies for China. Um, but, you know, it's important to remember that most of the world uh, is not sanctioning Russia. Most of the world is watching this and not necessarily on side with uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, on what's happening here. And also, you know, Asian allies and partners who have also sanctioned. Um, and so I think, you know, China doesn't feel as isolated as we might think that they do. Right. Um, you have uh, not only India, which is, of course, a, a U.S. partner in the Indo-Pacific, uh, welcoming Wang Yi recently and now welcoming Sergei Lavrov and not not being on the same page. But you also have much of the global south, um, you know, buying into this narrative that, you know, maybe the U.S. Uh, is the one to blame here that's kind of uh, being more of an instigator. So when we see some of what China's putting out there in terms of a narrative and its propaganda, it can seem, well, that's not going to possibly, you know, have a, have a receptive audience outside of China. But there are actually a lot of places in the world where it does. And so having that context for how China's thinking about where it stands and the strategic bind that it finds it in, itself in, I think is really, you know, uh, pretty important going forward to understand uh, what China's thinking is. But, you know, in terms of the foundations, I think Jude laid it out well. Obviously, the kind of joint focus on uh, so-called U.S. hegemony and the threat that the U.S. poses to Chinese and Russian interests and more specifically to these specific regimes, right? This notion, uh, by, you know, that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin both have uh, that the United States um, and the so-called West are out to undermine their regimes and that this, um, you know, push um, for color revolutions in their region and push for uh, democracy is a thinly veiled attempt to, to undermine their um, non-democratic regime. So, um, but we can talk you know, a little bit more about that, I think. Yeah. Um, Jude, what do you think from Xi Jinping's perspective, what are the risks that he may be most worried about? Um, you know, what is he going to look to avoid? What are the downsides? What is he trying to kind of evade? You know, with the party Congress coming up, importance of stability and other things, are, is he afraid that this could rock the boat and upset things domestically? Or as, yeah, I, don't, I keep repeating the same question, but what are the risks? <laughs> um, it's a great question. It's really a hard question because I, in some ways, um, have come to realize that what we think he should be thinking is different from what he is actually thinking. I, I um, just came from moderating a panel with Danny Russell, who made a great Jane uh, Russell of the uh, Asia Society, who made a great point that power affects the vision and hearing of leaders. The vision because they can often become myopic, uh, the hearing because they often are surrounded by sycophants who who shape the way that they you know process it. it Jude, you know, this this is sounding familiar to a Russia watching audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, actually, the the parallels there are are, are unnerving. Um, but I would say um, so. Let me step outside of. Um, of, of what he's thinking, because we don't know, but let me, let me articulate what I think he should be thinking, um, which is right now, I would imagine that Xi Jinping and, and building on Dave's great comment, I don't think he is feeling as isolated as we think or hope he, he, he should. There's a feeling here of end of history 2.0, now that we've seen this demonstration of transatlantic solidarity, 
um, you know, the, the way that we've been, you know, we've got Singa Singapore, you know, working with us on sanctions, rah, rah, rah. But on Dave's point, you know, this morning, we just saw that Cambodia has signed an MOU with the Chinese military. We saw this agreement with the Solomon Islands. Wang Yi had a successful-ish trip to India. Um, so the, the, this, the spirit of China pushing outward and, and not sitting at home licking its, you know, licking its wounds, I think, is very evident here. So I think in the, in the diplomatic space, they're, they're likely to be hearing much um, that would confirm to them that they have some initiative here. Domestically, absolutely, this is a really challenging time for Xi Jinping. And, and um, it, it certainly is the case if we look at um, high-level meetings and announcements that are coming out from Beijing, they're feeling now nervous about where COVID is. Certainly, they've just uh, instituted a lockdown in, in Shanghai. We've seen the word stability come out a lot more in key economic meetings as they face some of these some of these economic uh, uh, headwinds. And of course, as you mentioned, Andrea, we've got the 20th Party Congress coming up here. So if I was going to try and square that circle uh, between maybe feeling that there's some initiative that they're building in the external environment, even recognizing the challenges of, of Ukraine, um, and the domestic uh, headwinds, I would say, I would, I would summarize it like this. Um, we stumbled early in Ukraine, but we found our footing and we found a narrative that is essentially helping us to navigate some of these shoals. We're going to take a tongue lashing from Europe tomorrow um, at, at the EU-China uh, summit, but our economy is still so central to European uh, economic interests that we'll, we'll, we might take a tongue lashing, but we're, we're going to get through this. And besides, we still see some avenues to drive a wedge between Europe and, and the United States. And in that case, when, when China hears strategic autonomy, it probably has a different definition than, than the rest of us. Um, we've got a challenging time domestically, economically, but as we've shown over the past several years, we, we've, we've uh, honed and fashioned the tools we need to make through it. So this is going to be a rough patch, but we're going to get through. And by the time I, Xi Jinping, am coronated at a, at a third term, um, I think things will have uh, rebounded a bit and we will still have the initiative uh, in the external environment. That's what I think he's thinking. I, I wish he was factoring in more of these costs. And, and from our perspective, and this might be wishful thinking, that external events are going to provoke a rethink. Uh, but we've been wishing that for you know 30 of the of the of the last you know 40 years and and that hasn't worked out too well so I suspect it's going to be the same thanks uh, very much for for all of that uh, I um, I really like when we talk about China that kind of gives us a whole different perspective on Europe and all that we do every day so it was really great to hear what you all said well let me ask you um, in, about uh, North Korea and the reason I want to throw that in there is you know here we have uh, these uh, ICBMs well, at least it sounded like the last shot was an ICBM shot, um, but they're, they're doing all kinds of things to stir the pot uh, there in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and um, in terms of China, you know, China's got a, you know, a lot happening now with Putin, that they've got eyes on what's happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, they're doing the Solomon Islands and, and Cambodia, you mentioned that as well. But then you have um, the North Koreans acting up uh, suddenly and causing trouble when maybe China doesn't need this trouble as well as everything else on its plate. So where is China when it comes to North Korea and what North Korea is doing? Is, are, they, are they making phone calls and saying, for God's sake, cut it out? Or what's going on? Well, I'll maybe try to jump into that and then let, let Jude jump in. Um, I think, you know, the, the traditional approach that China takes to North Korea is obviously they 
would prefer to have um, more more stability on the peninsula, and they certainly don't. Um, I think like the idea of having a a strong nuclear armed North Korea right on their border. That's not that's not in China's interest. But you always have to contrast that with the fear of you know what what they often phrase as as no war and no chaos uh, along that border. Um, and the potential for the regime to collapse, the potential for uh, the United States to use that uh, as a as an uh, an entree uh, to expand our influence on the peninsula right up to China's border, um, and to uh, effectively use it as an excuse to enhance our uh, strategic and security position in Northeast Asia to China's detriment. So I think you know when we you know we and that I've been thinking about a lot about North Korea in the context of. Um, how China is going to handle these questions around uh, whether they will enforce sanctions against Russia, right? It's always been about, you know, China wants to kind of be perceived to be doing the right thing in terms of pushing towards stability uh, and in terms of pressuring uh, Kim Jong-un. But um, the question is, you know, how much leverage does China have and then how much leverage are they actually willing to use? Uh, and it's the same question we're thinking about now with Russia. Um, and it's the same one that we think of with with North Korea. So is, is someone picking up the phone and saying, hey, hey, Cut it out? No, I don't think so. Um, and I think at this point, there's uh, there's been documented over the last many years now a limited amount of leverage that China is willing to actually use to pressure North Korea to pull back on its ICBM program, its nuclear program, um, for fear of pushing things in a direction uh, where you're actually you know causing potential uh, regime instability in North Korea, um, and where you, you might be causing a, a more significant rift uh, in the China North Korea relationship that. Uh, would not be conducive to China's strategic interests, as you say, Jim, because China's got so many other things that they're dealing with at this time. So we may look at it and see China's dealing with all these things around its periphery. It's dealing with this, you know, the internal issues. It's dealing with what's happening in Ukraine. They they must want to try to do something to stop this happening uh, in North Korea, but uh, they they don't have the wherewithal to undertake the kind of leverage that would make that happen without causing more problems for themselves uh, yeah. in East Asia and potentially advantaging uh, the United States, but I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right, Dave. Um, and I think it's this, the second part of your leverage equation where it's not that China doesn't have leverage. It's a, it's a, it's the willingness to use it. And it's also in, in Beijing somewhat defense or mild defense. Um, uh, th this is a well-worn path that, um, North Korea has shown that it, it's, um, the cards it can play are stronger than, than China's hands. As, as often the erratic player um, can, can do in a game like this. Um, and I think also the, the, the North Koreans and the Chinese have regular discussions. I think it's well understood in Beijing what the function of this, this test was, which now looks like it was a Hwasong 15, not a Hwasong 17 in a, um, a dressed up, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, dressed up sort of pageantry here uh, that was as much uh, an intent to signal something to the incoming South Korean uh, administration and the United States as well. Um, I think we're where Beijing is undoubtedly getting worried is the prospect of a another nuclear test um, coming at a pretty key time right now for China, as we just mentioned. In terms of, uh, there's a lot of moving parts in the international environment right now, and if 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 Beijing was going to use a moment to try to really lean in on the Kim regime and at least say not now, it would be at a time where you're seeing security discussions in the Indo-Pacific already. Um, rising in severity and concern over the prospect of, of a, of a Russia-China um, partnership moving forward, but also just in response to events in, in Ukraine. So again, as I mentioned at the outset, there is the, the steepening of the curve in discussions on AUKUS and Quad has, uh, has, has, um, has, has picked up, to mix my metaphors. And certainly, 
all it would do is exacerbate those trends from Beijing's perspective if there was a nuclear test that would just give even more evidence for there to be um, new discussions around the security environment in Japan, in Korea, in Australia, where, where we've already seen, I, I think, dynamics which, which Beijing is, is concerned about. To bridge us back, but to pick up on this thread that you are both talking about. So if she's not willing to use his leverage with Kim, you know, that's one thing. Um, that's the same theme we've heard in the Russia context, which is European leaders in Washington, to some extent, hoping that China would be willing to use its leverage with Putin. Um, I wonder just to hear you both reflect, is that total wishful thinking um, or is there any potential that that might happen um, in the in the coming days? And Dave, maybe to start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is it's largely wishful thinking. Um, I think that, you know, for for China, for the reasons that we've laid out, you know, Russia really is the closest and most important strategic partner in dealing with the principal strategic adversary, the United States, which um, China has gotten all kinds of, um, you know, validation if they needed it over the last uh, couple of years, few years, um, that the United States is going to go harder in, in our rivalry, uh, in a protracted rivalry with China. They think we're going to be much tougher uh, potentially, uh, they've, they've seen signs of, of more toughness on, on Taiwan. And there's an assumption, and Jude was just kind of hinting at this, and we talked about it in, around North Korea. It really, when we think about the mindset of Xi Jinping and the, and the Chinese Communist Party leadership, it really is that the United States is fundamentally trying to prevent China's rise to great power status. We're trying to contain China, and we're ultimately interested in uh, undermining the, the Chinese Communist Party regime. And so I think, you know, that's the mindset we have to understand and then shift that to, and Russia is the most important partner in preventing that from happening. Um, and we can see, you know, Russia is going to be weaker, maybe it'll be less useful and less important. But, you know, to have this uh, what 2,600 mile border with Russia, and to not have to fundamentally worry about it largely while China's dealing with all the other things that we're talking about. To have a partner um, that is obviously a very important nuclear player in the world that can complicate U.S. Um, military contingency planning um, in ways that no one else could. Um, to have a partner in, as we've discussed before, you know, revising the international order. Um, and, and doing things in international institutions that complicate things that the U.S. and, and its partners and allies might want to do. That really can't be, um, I think, overstated. And then, of course, we get to what we've already talked about in terms of the commonality of the regimes and these regimes that are going in an increasingly personalist direction. And what does that mean for the for the way uh, she views Putin as, a, as an important partner and also a partner that he has um, kind of lionized inside inside China. So that's another you know issue is how could he kind of turn around and pull back from that. But I don't even think that's in, in the realm of consideration right now. I think uh, the partnership with Russia is so important and the view of the United States um, as as an adversary uh, is, is so deep that um, to, to really consider now putting significant leverage uh, that, that would make a difference on Russia, I don't think that that's something that has, has ever been under any real consideration in Beijing, but I don't know, Jude may have other ideas. Um, no, this is becoming a nod fest um, because I agree with Dave, but I, I would also add just if we think about the personal dynamics of the relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin, I, I see no world in which Xi Jinping is going to threaten um, Vladimir Putin. That just defies the the logic of the relationship right now. Um, so there's a there's a personal dynamic here. I think if I think it's well known that Beijing would have preferred 
um, that the conflict didn't begin and certainly didn't get to the level uh, that, it, that it has now. That was clearly a surprise probably to, to Putin as well. Um, but if Beijing had had leverage that it wanted to use to walk back the conflict, it would have used it, right? I mean, that was the point of the call two days after the, the launch of the invasion between Xi and Putin. And, and the most we got out of that was essentially Xi Jinping making vague calls for, for discussion and, and Putin in the Chinese readout accepting this idea of, of, of vague calls. And all the evidence we have right now there's, there's a sen- in terms of Chinese behavior is they are explicitly at the podium of the MFA um, uh, saying that blame for this conflict is not with Russia, it's with NATO and the United States. They're, they're n- this is why I do get frustrated when people say about China's neutral position on this. Uh, it's neutral if you're not reading what the MFA is saying every day. And by the way, in the People's Daily every day, there are pieces that essentially say NATO expansion uh, to to Russia is what the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy is to the United States, and this was uh, this uh, I think was put most pointedly in a speech by uh, the Vice Foreign Minister Liu Chung in, in a speech two weeks ago that should have gotten more um, I think press coverage because it was a very very worrying. Uh, consolidation of China's position in linking NATO to Russia and Indo-Pacific to to the United States. And it doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to think about, well, if they're essentially saying that NATO caused the war and that Russia was right because it had to take these steps to to address its legitimate security concerns, what's what's the proxy for China in that situation? Is this about Taiwan? Um, is this other areas, and 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 that is that is very very worrying logic that is now coming out of the highest levels um, of Beijing that I think we really need to start taking seriously. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, and I would just add too. I think the you know when we, it doesn't mean that it's not useful what the administration, the Biden administration is doing in terms of trying to really you know engage with Europe and talk about what what China is doing and talk about you know the potential to maybe put pressure on to have China at least not give as much support to Russia to, you know, evade or at least to uh, mitigate the effect of the sanctions. China has repeatedly said they're going to maintain normal economic ties with Russia. That's kind of vague. We don't know exactly what that means. There's clearly going to continue to be a, you know, an energy relationship, a trading relationship. Um, but I think for, on the, the broader point is, you know, and we kind of talked about this earlier, China is in a really difficult position in trying to go into the meeting tomorrow with, uh, with EU leaders. Um, and just kind of for the weeks ahead to say, um, you know, this is uh, an issue that, uh, you know, China kind of the ball is not in China's court. You don't look to us. This is on the U.S. and it's on on NATO to come to the table and to be as you know, I've heard from Chinese diplomats to be realistic and to sit down and try to do what needs to be done and be es- essentially be responsible adults and and end this conflict and, and don't look to China. This is not this is not us. And of course, you know the, the view that that uh, unilateral sanctions are are illegal, and that's again part of the propaganda. Um, but to 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 try in in this propaganda, it's not it's that you know NATO is really you know fundamentally to blame along with the United States to to have that coming out of your mouth and then going and talking to the Europeans, which you know make up most of NATO, um, and then say you know we we you know want to have an honest conversation with you. And we're, you know, we want to kind of uh, broker peace and we want to actually potentially play a mediator role. That's a very difficult um, path to tread. And I think that, uh, um, you know, as we've discussed before, China does value its relationship with with Europe, not just as, a, as an economic partner. You know, EU is the biggest trading partner of, of, of China, uh, but also to, to try to um, ensure that there's not a united transatlantic response to, to China's rise and challenge. And so. Um, they they really do uh, want to prevent a fundamental break um, from what we hear from the Europeans. They're saying we're going to make you make a choice, 
Um, obviously, that's not really going to happen. Um, so the question is, can China really muddle through over the next few weeks? And as Jude said, I think they believe that they can and that the economic relationship will ultimately win the day. Really quick, I know Jim wants to ask a question, but just a, a follow up. Jude, when when she and the Chinese Communist Party hear that those messages from Europe, how credible do you think that Beijing thinks those threats are? And I guess it's, it's related to this broader question of, you know, there has been a lot of kind of collective back padding, and I don't say that in a pejorative or condescending way, like uh, with that, these unprecedented sanctions that the United States and Europe have been able to do. We went after Russia's central bank that Europeans are now talking about incurring real costs, societal costs for sanctions on Russia as they're looking to you know, reduce coal imports and they have plans and commitments to reduce their imports of oil and natural gas. So Europeans are showing that their societies are willing to incur costs to push back on these aggressive actors. So I wonder, has that increased Europe's credibility in the eyes of Beijing? Or do you think Beijing still, because its market is so huge and the economic ties are so important to Europeans that, that, that you know, they might say, well, that, you know, what we see vis-a-vis -vis Europe and Russia, that's not going to be applied or directed at us, given our deeper economic ties? That's a really great question. <clears throat> um, I wonder if we want to sort of position the potential impact of a, of a unified statement to, tomorrow more at the margin rather than at the center of, of China's calculations. I think it's, I think there's nothing um, fundamentally substantive that could be said tomorrow that will Beijing will take to heart and decide it's going to fundamentally recalibrate its its strategy. I think the thinking is so consolidated in Beijing about how, um, first of all, how how powerful its market is, but secondly, how adverse the security environment is. Um, that I, I think, and and I should add to this that Xi Jinping, it's great that he is at the meeting tomorrow. That we need more leader to leader discussions with Xi Jinping because he lives in such a a, a bubble, but nonetheless. He's not going to take it too well tomorrow if there's a pointed comment made to him about um, here's the road to goodness and here's the road to you know uh, to destruction. Choose Xi Jinping. I, I think we should temper our expectations that he is going to come out a chastened and humbled, a humbled leader. But um, marginal improvements are are important, and I think we sh we should pick baseball analogies here on base percentage. Um, we don't have to ha have to hit grand slams. I think singles and walks will do. And if if the outcome of the discussion tomorrow is Xi Jinping's bubble has been punctuated uh, just a little bit, and he is now, or excuse me, punctured just a little bit, and he is now beginning to see that choices Beijing has made more recently and in its in its relationship with Russia are are shaping its relations with a very critical strategic center of power, which is Europe. Um, I think that will be all for the good, and that will we should expect that the outcomes of that are going to be of of, mar of marginal effect on on their decisions. But that may be a marginal choice to um, to play ball in terms of uh, Russia, or that may be a marginal decision that um, they now are aware that there are some vague lines in terms of the types of military assistance that they might want to want to want to pull back from. But I think we need to think about shaping Europe's relationship with China over the longer term, not just 
putting too much pressure and, and high expectations for tomorrow. Um, I think this is happening anyway with the, the um, we've been holding this, this uh, dialogue with uh, Germany over the past couple of days. Uh, and so we've been having discussions all, all day today and it's been really interesting because uh, the head nodding grows every year that we do these uh, as much because uh, Europe is beginning to really see clearly who China is as an actor and some of the illusions around China shifting its position or becoming more more friendly and cuddly as its economic relations with Europe deepen. I think they're seeing the opposite of, of that. And certainly just the mere fact of the close relationship between Russia and China, especially the February 4th statement, which was signed when there were 150,000 Russian troops on the border and US intelligence was saying they were gonna invade. That has, that has imposed, I think, a pretty significant cost, um, even if Xi Jinping doesn't uh, directly um, uh, understand it now. So anyway, that's my pitch for tomorrow is, I think we're we're talking, I think we're putting expectations on Europe now, which are, are smart. We're basically trying to say, go in with a unified voice, but I think coming out of this, we need to temper our expectations for just how fundamental a shift we should expect from China or Europe uh, at the meeting. Uh, just a quick question. Um, and to shift uh, the focus to Washington, DC, uh, and um, in the wars that, that may be over, I don't know, but the war that was going on between the Europeanists uh, like Andre and myself, who said all money and, and focus should go to Europe uh, and Russia, uh, and those uh, like you guys who say, no, 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 uh, it's all about China. You guys got in the way. Would you please step aside and let us, let us uh, continue our vacuuming up of all, all attention and money into the Indo-Pacific? Um, I just so I'm just uh, I'm I'm here in Paris, so I'm out of that war now. But I'm in wondering where where are we on that? Where has is have they kind of concluded now that it, we're going to do both or we're going to do one and not the other? I mean, Kath Hicks had a formulation that she used when she introduced uh, either the budget or one of the documents out of the Pentagon where she talked about one is existential, the other is the today threat, and da 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 da. So where are we in the in the battles uh, over Indo-Pacific versus Europe? Who's who's winning? Jim, you're not out Paris of the battle. Just stay here. Yeah, you're not out of the battle. Oh. We just forward deployed you. <laughs> oh, I think good. I think I think we all just agree that we just forget about the Middle East, right? And then you know, we yeah. <laughs> no. um, I'm kidding, kind of. Uh, I think you know. I don't think the the battle is ever going to be won if there is if, if there is a battle. I mean, I think there's a recognition that if anyone thought that we were going to finally, 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 actually entirely pivot to the Asia Pacific, to the Indo Pacific, whatever we want to call it, um, you know that that wasn't that, that that it's not going to happen. That there's going to have to continue to be a focus um, on obviously what what what's happening in Europe, what's happening with Russia, in addition to having a, a global presence. And I think that that's something that's also understood. Um, and I'm someone who has, you know, long advocated, I mean, leaving aside the specific, you know, questions around the, you know, the DOD budget uh, or things like that. I think, you know, when you talk about the China challenge, yes, the most intense focus needs to be on the Indo-Pacific for obvious reasons and needs to be, you know, thinking about Taiwan contingencies and needs to be thinking about the East China Sea and the South China Sea and things like that. But the China challenge is a global one. Um, and so it's not even really going to be about, OK, can we focus on this region or that region, if we're thinking about China, we need to be thinking about it uh, in terms of the, well, in terms of the, you know, PLA going global, we also need to think about what's happening in the economic space, in the tech space, um, and the places where I think at the end of the day, 
um, the, you know, the competition, the strategic competition that we find ourselves in with China and will be in now for decades unless something really fundamental shifts. Um, it's not one that's happening primarily in, in the military domain. So I know that's a very crafty way of getting around your question, but maybe Jude will answer more directly. I think it's a really great question. And I think this is probably a time where we want to sit back, take stock and ask some questions of ourselves because what I don't think we should do is play kitty soccer where now because of the war in Ukraine, we suddenly... We suddenly now say, first of all, oh, our, our, our interests and priorities are everywhere, um, which I think will be the tendency, the, the sort of walk and chew gum. I also think it's clear that an Asia first position is no longer tenable, partly because you can't say to your European allies and, and friends as they deal with an existential crisis, um, you deal with that. And when you're done, please come over to the Indo-Pacific where we need you to compete against China. Um, so I don't think this is one where we want to rush to answers. In fact, even though I know it feels like the immediacy of this concern demands it. Um, I think to Dave's point, if I think ahead 15 years on who is the power we're most likely to be competing with in, in, in across a number of domains, it still feels to me like that's going to be China. Um, on the other hand, you now clearly can't say um, that Russia is, and again, you know, Andrea and Dave, you've, you've been writing about this, and, and I'm late to the party, that you can't say that Russia was or is some, you know, second rate, you know, power running out of gas. Um, I think we've, we've, we've um, that, I think many of us are, are waking up to uh, the, the, the threat that is posed by Russia, depending on, how, no, no matter what, how much gas you think it has in the tank. So um, I think, you know, principles that we need to really interrogate over the next few weeks and months is number one, priorities still matter. Um, we're seeing an increase in the Defense Department budget, but that was never really the issue, right? The issue is as much strategic and cognitive and a matter of priorities as much as a matter of money. Um, what we're seeing now is a microcosm of my, and I'm sure Dave's as well, frustration about China is there was this view that we had to compete with China everywhere. Um, and that was the flip side of not having our own positive objectives defined well enough. And so what we're in a reactionary mode where, oh, China's got a Belt and Road Initiative, we've got to have a Belt and Road Initiative. You know, China's opening a military base here, we need to push back against that military base there. Um, China is very good at, or I should say the party and Xi Jinping have been very good about articulating a, a overall global strategy that they then think about the role that the United States plays as an obstacle to achieving those goals. So you don't hear Beijing talk a lot about its US strategy. What you hear Beijing talk about is its grand strategy and, and, and where does the United States factor into that? I would recommend that we use this as a moment to do the same. What do we want? It's the only possible way you can think of where China plays into that. What, what are we looking for? And, I, and as a, I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but the final point I would say is, especially as we think about shifts in power that are happening for structural reasons. And some of this we should welcome and celebrate, like the rise of, of countries like Indonesia um, in Southeast Asia. This is not 1995. Um, we still look like a unipolar you know, hegemon, um, but I think we wanna start thinking smartly about where do we wanna be in five or 10 years? And do we wanna start shaping a, a move towards multipolarity rather than just digging in our unipolar heels um, and this is a really good moment to do that, I think, to think about what is the world we want to build and construct. Um, and then as a second order question, where do Russia and China factor into that, either as obstacles or, or, or opportunities? And then we'll think of the right strategy. But it can't just be 
everything China does, we're going to push back against. And oh, now it's Russia too. So we're now just going to do both. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, um, I think Jude laid it out very nicely. I think the, you know, part of that is also recognizing that it's not just uh, we can't nor should we be focused on trying to deal with China, um, you know, having more of a global role everywhere and always. We need to be obviously focusing on the areas uh, that are most important strategically for the United States. But I think also we need to be thinking of what's most effective and what's most effective is actually engaging with these regions and these countries not just because China has suddenly developed an interest in them, but because it's actually the best thing for those countries and the people in those regions. Um, and that is something that is true because, uh, as Jude's saying, what we want, I think what we want as Americans is to have more of the world be, be free and prosperous. Um, and then, you know, as a corollary of that, also have good relations with the United States and, and kind of align more with, with U.S. interests as open societies. But I think it's also the, the, the case that a, a lot of the work that goes into ensuring that and preserving that and supporting that is a lot less costly um, than than what we often do in terms of focusing on the military solution or or every you know if you have a hammer everything's a nail and I think what we can do in terms of um, support and work through diplomacy through foreign aid which has traditionally been viewed as kind of the you know the the secondary um, you know area of focus after what can we solve with the with the defense um, defense hammer. I think that really needs to come to, to primary focus. And I think it's something that will long-term create resilient societies. And so at least in the, the China work that I've done, especially in the global South, that's really the key to, to supporting uh, U.S. interests uh, in a way that I think um, aligns with, with our values. And then the last thing I'll say, which is, you know, we, we, you know, over and over again, are, you know, hearing about allies and partners, but I think it can't be more important than to say, you know, when we're looking at how are we going to do all of these things at once, we, you know, see over and over again the wisdom of relying on um, our established allies and partners in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere, but also, as Jude was saying, um, developing these relationships with middle powers and being more comfortable with them having uh, a leading role in regions and, and really trying to cultivate that. Um, and I think that's that's really critical also to dealing with an emerging challenge that is, you know, kind of a, a multi-dual-headed uh, uh, hydro with China and Russia now. I think there's there's ways to handle this uh, that don't have to come down to how much money is DOD getting for these two countries and these two regions and, oh, my God, how are we going to do all of this at once? Okay, final question. That was really helpful from both of you. Um, the Taiwan question, I think it's everyone's favorite question, is what has what has Beijing learned um, that is applicable to its designs or its plans um, on Taiwan? Um, I feel like my answer to all these questions is we don't know, but let's take a stab at it. I mean, we don't know. And I think that's going to be, I think we're going to rush to judgment here. And I, I should say Bonnie Glazer and I wrote an op-ed. I'm a bit of a hypocrite right now because Bonnie and I, Bonnie Glazer and I wrote an op-ed saying, here, here's, here's the lessons that Beijing should learn. In many ways, I think it will depend on where things look in six months. Um, and I, I, I think if um, if if we see that um, the war is still grinding on, or um, and that Russia is continuing to take significant losses, uh, then I think Beijing will learn one set of lessons about the the nature of protracted war, guerrilla insurgencies, um, and and Western resolve. If things go differently, and I think, and we all hope that the conflict ends in in a negotiation, but depending on what the final outcome of that is, Beijing might learn that it is able to take territory take some losses for sure, and it has to expect more Western resolve, but still may be able to achieve some, some political you know, aims here. Um, so I think we need to watch this, this, this very, very carefully. I should also say we should help shape the way that China hears this. 
Um, I think we may need to be more forward leaning in ensuring that the message gets up to the big guy because most of the discussion around Taiwan here is frustratingly all about military. Whereas, and this may be somewhat naive, I think first and foremost, this is a political decision that Xi Jinping will be making. So how do we help shape that political decision um, such that he has greater uncertainty about the possibility of success and begins to take on board the extraordinary costs politically this could bring to him um, if this turns into a more protracted uh, uh, conflict for Taiwan? We basically want him to think it's not worth it. Yeah, I think Jude covered that very well. I would just add, you know, the from the looking from the Taiwan side, I think, you know, what what lessons are are, are is Taiwan and Taiwan society learning? We have, you know, been seeing in, in the last uh, several days or a week or so, Taiwan considering extending, you know, conscription service uh, in Taiwan. Uh, there's some more debate about, um, you know, how uh, how to better prepare for a potential um, conflict with 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 China, how to deal with potential invasion, which types of um, you know, uh, military equipment and, and things to deal with for such an asymmetric threat and kind of a long-term drawn-out conflict, the kind of thing that we're seeing in Ukraine. And then more fundamentally, and this is something that I think also the um, the Beijing is considering, uh, you know, the, the, the resilience of Taiwan and Taiwan society in this kind of a conflict, watching how Ukraine has been able to, to push back and remain so resilient, um, and, and the importance of dealing with uh, what we know that the that the PRC tries to do in terms of interfering and softening up um, Taiwan's political system and trying to create um, advantages in that way well before any kind of actual conflict would erupt. That's that's really critical uh, to making sure that that Taiwan is better prepared for any kind of crisis that that might uh, occur in the years to come. Well, this was really wonderful. Um, I think, yeah, this issue is like, as we've made clear in the conversation is a moving target. It's evolving um, a lot. I mean, which then creates a lot of opportunity for Western policymakers to shape the trajectory of events. So I think that's something that this underscored, but really appreciate both of you taking the time to do this. Um, it's, you know, obviously going to be an extremely important issue as all as things evolve. And hopefully we'll be able to check back in with both of you and see where we are, um, especially as the crisis in Ukraine evolves. So thanks to both. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.